guest away today is Dr. Angela Voss, Senior Lecturer at Canterbury Christ Church University. You've run a number of different programs, MA programs over the years. Two MA programs I've run, and I've also contributed to the Exeter one. Mm. Thank you very much for joining us to talk about your esoteric island discs. Maybe the first thing I'd like to ask you is, how did you get into Western esotericism? Well, I think it grew gradually, but um, a major turning point for me was when I was at university and um, I did a year of classical studies and we were studying Plato's Republic and read The Allegory of the Cave. And I'd never read any Plato before. I had been a musician and I knew that music moved me very deeply to a sort of altered state of consciousness, I guess. I didn't really have any theory to understand why Renaissance music was so important and so powerful for me. I never read any philosophy until then. And then we did this year on Plato and um, reading Plato's Myth of the Cave was like one of those aha moments, which was it was intended to be, of course, by Plato. It was intended to be an initiatory story. And it was just like opening a door. And I realised that music for me had been like the way out of the cave. It had been like a way of moving away from the kind of shadows of everyday life, as it were, and opening up this magic door. And that story meant so much to me um, that I felt I must just start studying more of this um, material and started reading more Plato. And, of course, that just led me to... um, the Pythagorean tradition, it led me to the Hermetic tradition. And then when I was in my 20s, I was uh, a member of the School of Economic Science, which is actually a philosophical school devoted to the teachings of Plato, Plotinus, Ficino, as well as Eastern teachings. Advaita Vedanta as well, no? Yes, yes, that's right, that's right. Yes, so combined East and West. I came into contact with, I worked for Anthony Rooley, who ran the Concert of Music, who was deeply into the philosophy of Renaissance music and introduced me to the letters of Marsilio Ficino, who completely grabbed me and basically told me that I needed to write about his astrological music therapy because no no scholar had yet done so uh, and justified what he was doing. And that's how it all grew, really. And that led me in deeply into the Western esoteric tradition in terms of reading his sources, you know, the Hermetica, Plotinus, Jamblichus. And that's how it all started. So Plato, as so often, was the gateway drug. Yeah. It's as he yes. has been for millennia now, for people to start looking into a hard to define, but nevertheless, you know it when you see it. Um, sort of tr- subterranean tradition in the West. Sometimes it's subterranean, sometimes it pokes its head above the parapet and becomes quite open and then it has to go hide again yes now you first studied music performance renaissance and baroque music is that right and then later did your phd on the astrological music therapy of ficino yes so i first i I, you know i started learning violin and piano at quite an early age um and then when i was a teenager i discovered renaissance music through the television series, The Six Wives of Henry VIII, which actually had original music with it. Mm. And I'd never heard anything from that period before. And it just really hit a chord with me. I thought, wow, this, uh, there's something, uh, there's a memory stirred by this, this, this period of music. And that led me to start exploring that whole period of music. This was in the, in the 70s. 
when early music was just at its beginnings, really, of being revived on original instruments. And it led me to discover the music of Monteverdi, who, you know, became, still is, my greatest love, really, in terms of composers. And, yeah, I would just sit for hours and hours with headphones on when I was a teenager listening to Monteverdi and Gabrielli and Dowland. And um, they were my friends were all at discos. And that's how I got into that period of music. And then when I was... At university, the opportunity came to start learning to play the lute and the viol and the Baroque violin. And I went on to study Baroque violin and viol at the Guildhall School of Music after university for a year. Um, and fully intended to have a kind of career, really, in, in early music. Now, your first disc, tell us about this, Bach's Double Violin Concerto. Yes. So my first disc is really going right back to when I was at school and I just wanted to start with a piece of music that is so nostalgic because I used to play this uh, Bach double violin concerto with a friend of mine at school when we were both learning the violin and I just absolutely love it and it's um, this particular performance I've chosen is just so stunning it's so full of life it's so vital it's so just uplifting and um i came across it and i just couldn't stop listening to it and it took me straight back to playing this piece you know, with my friend at school and it really being the sort of start of this feeling that i wanted to play music all my life so the first movement of johann sebastian bach double violin concerto by the Netherlands Bach Society with yes. Shunsky Sato and Emily Deans. So you went on to do your PhD in the astrological music therapy of Marsilio Ficino. I wonder if you can tell us about yes. discovering Ficino and what you learned about him in your research. Yes, absolutely. Well, I discovered Ficino, as I mentioned, partly through the School of Economic Science and partly through um, Anthony Rulli and the fact that he'd been reading about Renaissance um, thought and philosophy. 
And I started reading Pacino's letters and I thought, wow, this is absolutely incredible man who was in the 15th century, you know, writing about universal themes that are so important for us now in such an accessible way. Um, and I began to realize through reading his letters just how immersed in astrology he was mm. because there are so many letters addressed to, you know, his fellow statesmen, churchmen, philosophers, musicians, the Medici family, particularly Lorenzo de' Medici, just talking in a very everyday way about their horoscopes, you know, and, oh, uh, you know, saying something like, oh, I won't send this letter to you today because Saturn's in a bad position and it probably will be delayed or, you know, just these everyday comments about astrology. I thought this is absolutely fascinating. And then I discovered his three books on life and the third part of which, which is called How to Fit Your Life to the Heavens, is all about using astrology in a therapeutic way, in a magical way, to um, uh, create rituals to all the different planetary de deities or daimons, actually, um, in order to harmonize one's soul with the cosmos and using someone's horoscope as a starting point, you know, in order to work with them um, and playing the right kind of music, using the right kind of incenses, the right kinds of foods, herbs, colors. And this is all part of the natural magic process. I thought, wow, this is so modern. You know, this is really new age in a way. And it's fantastic. And I began investigating scholarly writings about Ficino and found that hardly anybody had taken this seriously. You know, hardly any scholars, this was in the 80s, trusted Ficino's work on astrology. You know, for them, it was sort of almost embarrassing that such an eminent philosopher could practice astrology. And not only that, that he could write a whole treatise called Disputation Against the Judgments of Astrologers and then write letters to his friends all about astrology. And this was totally confusing to them. And I could under understand perfectly why he was doing this. And it was almost like he literally grabbed me, you know, shook me by the shoulders and said, look, you've got to write about why astrology and music were so important, not just important to my Platonism, but fundamental, fundamental to the Platonic worldview. And I just felt I had to do it. It was just like a sort of call from the past or call from some daimonic destiny or thread or something that I, I was chosen to do in some strange way. So that's when I embarked on, well, first of all, I did an, an MA in music performance and wrote a, wrote a dissertation about his music and then went on to do the PhD, which is a more sort of full study of his astrological music and how he went about it and his influences as well, his, his um, hermetic and neoplatonic influences. Yeah, and it was a, it was a difficult task because they were a male, entirely male community within the 15th century elite sort of circle of Florence. There isn't a single woman mentioned in Ficino's entire letters, apart from one letter where he mentions his mother and his grandmother as being clairvoyants, interestingly enough. But all the letters are addressed to men. And I was immersed in this world for five or six years and felt that I was having to become like an honorary member of this Platonic Academy, which meant you know, very, it was very difficult to maintain a kind of feminine identity. When I, as you probably know, you know, when you're writing a PhD, you just get completely, completely immersed in that subject, and you live it and you breathe it. 
so I had quite a love-hate relationship with it in some ways, you know, because I had to preserve myself as a, as a woman and a female voice within this entirely male mm. milieu. Yeah, and that was probably the most challenging thing. I would imagine that Ficino's oeuvre is especially male-dominant, not just because of the era he lived in, when men were movers and shakers and women were largely not on the political stage, on the public stage, but also because Ficino wasn't particularly interested in women. He, he's not about no. to put a, have a Beatrice figure or something like that because he's not, he just doesn't fancy women. He's not interested, no. I mean, he obviously had very sort of sublimated homoerotic relationships with fellow men like um, Giovanni Cavalcanti, um, who he dedicated his um, commentary on Plato's Symposium Ooh, to. Spicy. Uh, but he's yes, he says, oh, you know, Venus is Diana to me. You know, he just he doesn't have any particular attraction to women at all. No, it's, it was a very very male, and yet his wisdom is so universal and it applies to absolutely everybody. You know, he it's almost like he transcended any kind of gender in in the sense in the way he writes. But his whole circle was was male. Mm. Yeah, it was imitating the Platonic Academy of Athens. And to be fair, Plato, who's interlocutors and so on are also very male in the end insofar as sex comes up it's this kind of pederastic milieu where you have older men and younger boys so it's boys and men but that being said plato maybe goes further than any ancient writer to question first of all whether it even makes sense to have men dominant in society which he does in the republic in a very explicit absolutely. way absolutely and yes. also in the symposium, he plays with gender to such a degree that you are kind of left going like, what is a man? What is a woman? You know, you have this Diotima showing up suddenly out of the blue. Absolutely. Telling, I mean, Diotima is, yeah. And talking very, very about men character. becoming pregnant and, yeah. and all this sort of thing. Yes, I think with Plato, you just have to accept that, you know, the norms of his society and, and um, there's a whole social aspect to the way he wrote and, and, and the kind of people he wrote for and with. Pacino is very different in that he does totally recognise, you know, heterosexual marriage as, as, as honourable and divine. And, you know, there's a completely different feel about the Renaissance um, attitude towards love. But yes, it was still, I think, for me, the, the, the sort of male philosophical circle that I was entering into still meant that there was a whole sort of physical feminine side that wasn't being honoured because it was very much about restoring Sophia, about restoring the divine feminine and about how love, you know, human love is about moving from the human being to the divine and the human being is, the human being is, is the embodiment of the divine, but it's you know not the end point, you know, you're moving further, you're moving upwards as it were through love, which leaves the sort of the whole area of the sort of the erotic feminine a bit ambiguous and yeah it was quite a a, a sort of challenge for me at that time okay. i think i've got i think i've formed a better relationship with it now and and can understand the whole sort of ethos of the period and what facino was trying to talk about in terms of um bringing the two worlds together that actually it's not a split it's a uniting of the earthly and the divine ultimately Tell us about your second piece of music. Yes, yeah, so my second piece of music really is representing my love of Renaissance polyphony. So at the same time that I was listening to a lot of, of John Dowland and Monteverdi and 16th, 17th century music, I just fell completely in love with English polyphonic music 
And this was one of the pieces, again, I just used to listen to for hours. And it is so extraordinary because it's in 40 parts. So the effect of the harmonies as Talis kind of combines many voices with a few voices and sort of interweaves, you know, the different parts is absolutely intoxicating. And, I, and, and this period of music, polyphonic music in particular, really focused on the harmonic movement. You know, it wasn't so concerned with, as later music came to be, with the power of the text um, dominating the music, as, as, as we would find perhaps in the early 17th century with Monteverdi and with, with solo songs. You know, polyphony is more about moving with the harmonies in a way that creates the perfect, recreates the perfect harmonies of the fourth and the fifth and the octave within the Pythagorean tradition. So, you know, you're, you're continually sort of led to um, rest at the, at the perfect intervals of the fifth and the fourth. And the words obviously are important because they are, you know, they're underlying the music, but they're not what really dominate. And um, the version that I've chosen is particularly poignant because it was made quite recently in the huge space of the Tate Modern in London uh, by the Aura Singers when they were all socially distanced. So there's 40 singers arranged sort of six feet apart from each other in this huge space. Yeah. And I think it says something about the tragedy that's happened to the arts during the COVID lockdown period and how you know artists really need to reclaim their space and how the power of this music you know resounding in this wonderful art gallery as well about restoring you know the harmony that we've lost during all the sort of fear and panic and restrictions of this period so I think it's like doubly powerful
Thomas Tallis Spemin Allium by the Aura Singers, conducted by Susie Digby. Your next piece is a modern development of a theme by Thomas Tallis by Vaughan Williams. So what brings you to this, uh, selecting this piece of music? Well, again, this is rather nostalgic in that it goes back to my childhood and is one of the, one of the very first pieces of classical music that I heard. And I have to say that I, <laughs> I very rarely, in fact, listen to music post post seventeen hundred. I know I, that's a bit of a sort of I'm a bit of a musical hermit in that sense. But there are, you know, certain pieces from twentieth century that really do move me, and this is one of them. And there's something about Vaughan Williams' music, all of it really, that touches something very sort of mysterious and ineffable about Englishness. There's something about Vaughan Williams' music that immediately conjures up ruined castles and rolling hills, and it sort of takes me into a sort of space of of a sort of lost, imaginal English land. And the way that he's created and sort of weaved an orchestral piece around a very simple theme of Talis is quite extraordinary. It's like he's he's sort of symphonized it. You know, he's just taken a very simple and very religious, very spiritual snippet almost um, of Talis and then woven this massive orchestral sounds around it. Again, with great variety, sometimes just using a few strings, sometimes like the whole orchestra. And there's there's just a point in the middle when it just kind of wells up to this great kind of outpouring of um, engagement with, with, with something beyond. That's all like the way I can put it. So, yes, it's just one of those pieces that transports me and connects both with my love of Renaissance music and English polyphony, and also with this feeling of being rooted in in England and in a, an England that we've lost, you know, and a kind of Englishness that we've lost, and a countryside that was somehow connected to itself, you know, less to technology, perhaps. Mm. It's interesting because um, Vaughan Williams is, of course, writing music in the in the era of the steam trainification of the english countryside and the the yes the modern yes. march to march of progress that's right and uh maybe it's a yeah, reaction to that the way you express it it's very clear that you have a, a deep kind of emotional connection to this imaginal landscape this say blake blakeian eternal england that Yes, that, uh, I think I do. But at the same time, there's transcendence there too, because you talk about he's a, he's connecting to something beyond, in an absolute sense, not beyond this or beyond that, just simply beyond. The two yeah. can coexist so closely, right? You have the that feeling of truly being at home, right, in a way that yeah. maybe you're not even truly at home in in today's England. Yeah. But also transcending any idea of place. Altogether. Yes, and I think it's it's it, that reminds me also that it's something about bringing together the transcendent and nature. You know, I'm just thinking of the lark ascending, for example, and his also his fantasia on English folk tunes. You know, there's something about having this imaginal vision, you know, which is but it's still grounded in nature. It's in birds. It's in it's in you know, folk customs, it's in history. It's, it's, there's something 
connective about his music. And I guess that's partly why I love it. Ralph Vaughan Williams, Fantasia on a Theme by Thomas Tallis, section from this middle of the piece, uh, played by the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. And now we come to Claudio Monteverdi. Before we, before we play your piece, because it's so clear that Monteverdi is a, a great love of yours, perhaps you can tell us what, what it is about his music generally that is so uh, moving to you. Well, yes. Okay. Um, who who was he, first of all? Well, who was he? Yes, who was he? So he was a um, Italian 
composer who died in 1643, I believe, in Venice. And he, first of all, worked in Mantua for the Duke there, and then he moved to Venice. So his careers were in Mantua and Venice. He composed eight books of madrigals. So he was a, the last great madrigal composer, really. And his eight books of madrigals span a long period of time. And the first ones tend to be fairly conventional in terms of magical writing. And the last ones are completely, completely original and exploring whole new ways of, of writing for voices in such a way that the madrigal could go no further, really, after his eighth, eighth book of madrigals. And he also wrote for operas. He was the first operatic composer. Um, his first opera, um, Orfeo, in 1607, set the scene, really, for the you know, future operatic style and he devised what he called the new music which was a kind of singing that we would now call more sort of recitative or sort of monodic kind of um, singing with a, um, a continual accompaniment which was a whole new kind of music really um, derived from the Florentine Camerata who were a group of musicians and theorists at the end of the 16th century who wanted to get back to a more pure kind of singing where the, the emotions of the words were primary and that the music backed up the emotions of the words. And so for Monteverdi, he aimed all his life for what he called the perfect marriage of words and music. The meaning of the words was perfectly supported by the musical composition and the phrases he chose and how he, how he actually created the musicality under the words. And I think there's nobody else who achieves that perfection as well as he does. I mean, it's, it's quite extraordinary and I think what moves me most about his music is the fact that, in, I suppose we're talking kind of esoterically, he lifts the personal to the universal. So in his madrigals about love, for example, one is moved not just by a sense of human love, but one's moved to a sense of divine love. So the erotic and the spiritual come together. And some of his music is so erotic you know it has one sort of swooning but it's not you know it's it's swooning for a kind of longing for something beyond the human but it's also deeply erotic and I think that's what I found the most powerful you know particularly as a teenager about his music it was just wow this kind of it set off a longing for me you know for some kind of divine love that was impossible to find on, on the sort of human plane almost astrologically if any any listeners are astrologers or have any um understanding of astrological symbolism he does have in his horoscope a conjunction of the planets of venus and mercury which represent words and music you know venus is music mercury is words I've written quite a lot and thought a lot about the symbolism of his horoscope in relation to his music, which is a, absolutely fascinating. But that particular conjunction, that that Mercury and Venus, you know, he just lived, you know, and he just acted, he just composed. He It was innate in him, you know, to find the, this, this perfect relationship of the words and music. For me, the greatest piece he wrote was the Vespers of 1610, which he wrote in Mantua as a kind of audition piece for the job of Maestro di Capella at St. Mark's in Venice. And he pulls out all the stops in this piece. It's a setting of the Vespers, but it's full of such variety, virtuosic solo sections, duets, 
choral settings of psalms. He introduces kind of vocal techniques that are quite extraordinary and quite sort of Eastern in many ways, you know, displaying this sort of, um, it's almost like the singer is, is like a magical incantatory vehicle for something that's coming beyond from beyond them. Uh, it's full of sort of like counter-reformation, sort of piety as well, you know, it's devoted to the Virgin Mary and there's this sense of deep spirituality about it. It's also very poignant in that he wrote it quite soon after the deaths of both his wife and his musical protege, Caterina Martinelli, who lived with them. So he was undergoing a period of deep grief himself. And he comes up with this incredible piece de dedicated to the Virgin Mary, almost like a sort of redemption piece in a way. Yes, I wanted to include a piece from the Vespers, Duo Seraphim, which is a text taken from two different uh, parts of the Bible. But it's particularly magical. It's probably one of the most magical pieces within the Vespers in that it has two singers representing two seraphim who are calling to one another. They're, and they're usually set in you know, opposite ends of the church or in, you know, in different places. And then the third, a third which joins them. So Monteverdi creates this very magical effect when he has the two voices and then he has the third joining. And when he sets the words, these are three in one. The harmony sort of comes into a complete unison and almost stands still. And it's like the listener kind of can viscerally feel the sense of three becoming one. It, it really is amazingly physical, that sort of sensation. And um, I have a sort of story from Mark Tucker, who is um, a singer friend who was involved in a, in a project with me, me, which we'll come to who said he was once singing this piece in a church and as they were singing, you know, the, the back doors of the church just sort of flung open and it just felt like something was sort of rushing in. And it is very incantatory, you know, particularly on the word, on the word sanctus, sanctus, where the singers just go on and on and on with the repeat, repeating this, with a very sort of elaborate vocal technique, repeating the word holy, holy, holy. It's a totally magical invocation. Well, let's have a listen.
Monteverdi Choir at St. Mark's performing Duo Seraphin from Claudio Monteverdi's Vespers in 1990. This sounds like, to me, as a non-specialist, that, that Monteverdi was a kind of... He was like a Stockhausen of his day. He was pushing the, meti- mm. the, the materials, the um, technical abilities of his performers, but also the forms, to new mm. places. A bit like we see with the, late, the later Bach when he's going crazy on the keyboard and just creating yeah. almost atonal type compositions. But the operatic form was in some senses conceived of as a, a move back to the past, right? Bridging the gap over the middle, so-called Middle Ages, which was an idea that was just being invented at the time, actually, back to ancient Greek drama. Yes, Yes, that's, that's kind of rather paradox, really, that um, the Camerata and and Monteverdi, with their new music, felt that they were going straight back to ancient Greek powers of moving the soul through the ethos, um, through emotional ethos. And they rather, dis- well, not Monteverdi, but some of the other Camerata rather disdained what they called the first practice, which was polyphony, where you couldn't really hear the meaning of the words because the harmony was 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 the most important and they felt that wasn't going to move the soul as much as this new music where the ethos of the words, as in you know, what Plato talked about in the Republic, you know, um, that the words were the most important aspect. And, and I've discussed this a lot with, with students and um, what, is, what actually does move the soul more? Is it polyphony or is it this, the solo song? And of course the solo song then began to develop into opera and became a lot more emotional, a lot more personal. I think after the mid 17th century really loses a connection with a kind of magical universe, really. Um, I, I think Monteverdi's later operas aren't so successful in that sense. But I think Orfeo and Ariana, what we have left of Ariana, her lament, do both still connect us back into a sort of more participatory universe. And I think this is... Uh, this is another reason why Monteverdi is so powerful, because, yes, he is using a new form of music. He is using monody. He is using recitative. And he is totally believing that what he's doing is emulating Plato's ideals of 
the listener feeling the emotion that the singer's feeling, you know, that there's this sort of sympathetic reaction going on. But it's not self-indulgent and personal and it's not like, you know, Verdi or it's not that sort of highly sentimentalised sense. He still manages to do that, but still lift the listener to a kind of higher point. I'm just thinking of Orfeo's um, magical incantation to Charon in Orfeo, where he's singing a, a song to him to enchant him, to allow him to take him across the river Styx to rescue Eurydice. And he uses, Monteverdi uses all sorts of musical um, interludes and different kinds of instruments. And the very final verse is a very simple setting with strings, which is very ambiguous. And he's saying, Sol tu, noble Dio, only you, noble God, can kind of help me. And it's usually interpreted that he's referring to Charon here, but Charon isn't a god. He's just like a sort of you know, daimonic presence. So Sol also refers to Apollo and the sun. And it's almost that Monteverdi is quite deliberately using a little hymn to the sun at this point, harping straight back to Ficino's Orphic singing. Um, and harking indeed and back to the idea of the subterranean of sun in the, in yes, the Orphic and- uh, gold tablets and things like this. Yes, and the and the harmony that he creates very much reminiscent of a lira de braccio, which is probably the instrument that Ficino would have used. So is that and that's a kind it, of cello-like instrument? It's um, isn't it? well, it's more like a violin sort of shaped instrument, but it plays chordally, a flat bridge, so it it, it sort of plays right. um, pure harmonics of chords underneath. And I think it was the instrument that Ficino probably played. It evokes very strong harmonics, um, a lira de braccio. So Monteverdi sort of imitates this instrument and has Orfeo um, really sing a hymn to the Apollo at this point in order to help him on his quest to the underworld. And that has such deep esoteric connotations that you know, companies have going to now. But it, I mean, I can't imagine that, that this wasn't based on, on, you know, what Monteverdi knew of what, what Pacino was doing. I mean, it, or what you know was maybe quite a few kind of magical magus type musicians were doing during the 16th century. So it still retains that that sort of magical sense. Well, speaking of Orpheus, tell us about your next piece of music. So this is an Orphic hymn to Jupiter from a CD called Secrets of the Heavens. That I was very fortunate to mastermind back in 2000 with a group of musicians and with the actor Mark Rylance, who was reading Ficino's words. And we recreated imaginatively sort of semi-improvised versions of the Orphic hymns that Ficino would have sung to the different deities. So the, we don't have his original translations, but these were hymns that were written in Greek in the early centuries CE, believed to be much earlier, believed to be you know, right back, written by Orpheus himself um, back at the time of sort of Pythagoras, Hermes Trismegistus. And for Ficino and his circle, these hymns were vitally important as kind of talismanic, theurgic, intermediary symbols, really. Um, They were hymns to the different deities and elements, but he would have regarded them as like intermediary vehicles to lift the soul up to God. Each deity was like an aspect of the divine. So by singing a hymn to Venus, you know, you would be devoting yourself to the deity of, of Venus who would be then leading you to the divine itself. So 
for him, these hymns were an indication of how polytheistic and monotheistic worldviews could live together and be harmonized. And I'd always been fascinated by these hymns and the opportunity arose and the funding arose to create a CD where we could, we don't, because we don't know exactly what Ficino did. We have no, none of his music has actually survived. So the singers, Mark Tucker and Catherine King kind of composed their own music, their own hymns to the deities. And we interspersed these with Renaissance music of the period, uh, which conformed to Ficino's description of the different kinds of music for Mars and Mercury and the Moon, Venus, and produced a CD with his, with readings as well in between. And then we performed it live in um, Church of St. Bartholomew the Great in London, which was probably one of the high points of my life, this live performance, because there we were at the high altar of the church performing pagan hymns, and we had the appropriate incenses being wafted by an incense expert uh, along the aisle as we as we sang them. And it was like it was like really the culmination of all the work I'd done on Ficino. And it was something that you know had grown out of my PhD thesis, I guess. But it was like you know it was a theurgic ritual in itself. So I'd just like to play one of the hymns, which is the hymn to Jupiter that was composed by and sung by Mark Tucker, with an introduction by Mark Rylance. The soul of the whole universe is called Jove, who inwardly nourishes heaven and earth, the moving seas, the moon's shining orb, the stars and sun. Permeating every limb, he moves the whole mass and mingles with its vast substance. It is thus that the heavenly spheres are set in motion and governed by Jove, the spirit and mind of the whole universe. From him also arise the musical songs of these spheres, which are called the Muses. The divine prophet Orpheus says, Jove is first, Jove is last, Jove is the head, Jove is the center. The universe is born of Jove. Jove is the foundation of the earth and of the star-bearing heaven. Jove appears as man, yet he is the spotless bride. Jove is the breath and form of all things. Jove is the source of the ocean. Jove is the movement of the undying fire. Jove is the sun and moon. Jove, the king and prince of all. We may understand from this that all bodies are full of Jove. He contains and nourishes them, so that truly it is said that whatever you see and wherever you move is Jove. The music of Jupiter is deep, earnest and sweet, joyful yet steady. Corruptibilis, oh. 
So we've been fumigated by storax now. When, when that performance took place, which sounds like a real happening, were people's minds completely blown? Did you, did you create? Yes, people in the audience said they were very, very deeply moved by the whole experience. And I think it was interesting that it took place just before my academic career started. And I always regard it as a kind of... Um, a kind of blessing really of the gods for all the projects that the academic projects that, that followed the MA programs that I devised. Tell us about the MA programs because this is some very interesting stuff. At about um, 1998 or so I began teaching um, at the University of Kent on a wonderful MA program called the study of mysticism and religious experience run by Leon Schlamm who's no longer with us um, and Peter Moore, and they just invited me to teach a module on Ficino for that program. I'd never done any teaching before. I was plunged into MA level teaching and learned sort of, sort of by leaping in the deep end. And my colleague Jeffrey Cornelius, who I've been working with for you know, over twenty years now, who is also an astrologer and an academic, and has done a, an amazing study of divinatory practice and hermeneutics, was also teaching with me on that program. And after a few years. Uh, an amazing thing happened, which was that a huge sum of money fell into our laps from a um, a trust that wanted to support astrology in higher education. Um, and to cut a long story short, we developed an MA program at the University of Kent called MA in the Cultural Study of Cosmology and Divination, which was amazing. And I became a full-time member of staff there and Jeffrey and Patrick Curry and lots of other people were involved. And we taught, well, we taught all these things. We taught esoteric philosophy, um, history of divination and astrology, but it was very much experiential as well. So students wrote learning journals. It was very much about at the time we didn't call it we only only more recently have we come to understand it as a transformative learning program which it has been um, more recently but at that time um we still understood it as a as a place where students could engage with their own spiritual paths as well as academic study that was vitally important that ended in 2011 because there was strong opposition from certain parts of the university who ideologically were very opposed to what we were doing. And then after another three years of preparation, we managed to run it, start running it again in a slightly different format at Canterbury Christchurch University, 
where it has been running since 2014. Um, in the education faculty, formerly it was in religious studies, where it wasn't really happy. In the education faculty, we've been much luckier because they have been very open to all sorts of creative methods. So we've been able to have students creating artworks and they, they have to do a creative project as well as a learning journal, as well as academic essays. So we've tried to really engage the imagination and use autobiographical methods, autoethnographic auto methods, intuitive methods. They can write very, very personal um, accounts of their own journeys, their own lives. And it, we've had over 100 students altogether and some extraordinary dissertations and projects have come out of that programme. And it has been truly transformative. Yes, yeah, sadly, that is coming to an end next year, again, because for bureaucratic reasons, it doesn't fit into the university's agenda of education MAs. But it has achieved a huge amount. And I feel that with those two MA programmes, I have fulfilled a personal destiny. I just to put it like that. You know, I've fulfilled something that I feel I was sent here to do, which was to bridge two worlds, the world of the practicing esoteric, if you like, as an astrologer, and knowledge through practice, knowledge through spiritual practice um, of all the students as well, and rigorous scholarly academic work on the texts and the traditions. And that's what I've tried to do in my writing as well for the past 20, 30 years. I've tried to just inhabit that kind of middle place of the imaginal, what Henry Corbin would call the imaginal, and what Jeff Kripal, who's one of my favourite authors now as well, you know, would say is the place where you can be both scholarly and critical and deeply spiritual and passionate. And that's where I've tried to locate myself, and that's where the, our teaching has come from, you know, in terms of the MA, and the students have absolutely loved it. Yeah, that's what the MA programmes have achieved, and we're now carrying on with a new online platform called the Centre for Myth, Cosmology and the Sacred.com, where we're offering online courses, webinars, seminars, as well as creating an archive of a lot of the MA work that people can read and see, you know, the kind of wonderful things that were produced. That's exciting, but it's, it is very disheartening to, to hear that these approaches taken in traditional academic context have you know either been pushed out or have been underfunded or in one way or another have not had the the kind of staying power that one one would wish yeah there's this i think is probably part of a general malaise in the study of the humanities definitely uh it's just a sign of the times you know i think it's that all universities are absolutely panicking in terms of finances in terms of student numbers becoming more and more conservative in what they feel they have to offer I think it's far more that than ideological at Christchurch anyway. It was very interesting. We had a very, very good relationship with the Church of England side of Christchurch because they're a Church of England foundation. And we never had any ideological kind of opposition from the education faculty either. I think it's purely political and strategic, you know, the reasons for ending the programme. Yeah, it's true that I, I don't think the powers that be understood the importance of the kind of transformative learning we were doing. I'm certain of that. But also, I think there's a deeper reason. I think that there comes a point where these studies have to move on to a different level. And there's a point at which the limitations and boundaries and constrictions of the academic world have to be outgrown and moved away from. And 
I think I was spending far too much time on form filling where I think the universe was telling me actually that time needs to be spent on um, creating something deeper, you know, right. creating a kind of a kind of mystery school in a way that can take students deeper now into right. something. So I kind of feel it's the right time as well to be moving on to something new. So mm. you can get away from filling in forms and get back to Plato's forms. Get back to Plato's forms, yes. Yes, to, to try and get back to the real thing. Although the virtual, the virtual real thing at the moment. <laughs> it's a funny one, you know, the, um, the virtual, because when I was reading, uh, sorry if this is a, an unwelcome digression, but one of the things that really interests me about the divided line passage in the Republic is that at the bottom of the scale of knowledge, Plato puts knowledge of images, right? And so if everything in, in the, this world, the sensory world of becoming is an image in some way of a higher world, of the world of forms, yeah. all our knowledge through the senses is already knowledge of images, but this is an even more mediated form of knowledge where you're things like paintings and, and creations of artifice. And I never, I always thought, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't really get why Plato thinks that's such a significant further step away from true knowledge. In the internet era, it suddenly becomes clear what he was on about. Like you think almost like this guy's a prophet, yeah. you know, because he gets that when you are mediating your way of being in the world through a, a simulation made by people, you are really not getting at reality. Absolutely. And also I think it's, it's because people... Um, they say, oh, yes, Plato, you know, hated images. He, he hated the imagination. He just thought it was all fantasy. And, but I think what people don't realise is that um, Plato didn't. I mean, you know, when he, if you look at Ion and where he's talking about the poet and when he's talking about the inspired artist, he's just making a clear distinction between the artist or the poet who has gone out of the cave, you know, and is actually seeing the truth and is bringing that back through their work and the artist who is just looking at the back of the shadows and just recreating them. Mm. And he doesn't call it imagination. You know, he, his language is still the intuitive intellect. It's the intellect which, which sees the forms. He's very clear that there are two kinds of artistic creation, and one will lift us out, and one will just keep us stuck. All right. So let's hope that this um, little creation we're creating now is one that lifts us out despite the... Uh, oh, yes. The, <laughs> yes. the internet-mediated form it takes. Tell us about your next piece of music. This is John Dowland. And actually, John Dowland yes. is, is the one who inspired this idea of doing um, esoteric island That's discs. right. Well, yes, John Dowland, another amazing um, Renaissance composer, deeply inspired by Hermeticism, I believe. I mean, a lot of music historians would say there's no evidence to suggest, but I, for me, his music speaks volumes about the hermetic associations. And he would have been, you know, involved with the circle around John Dee and the poets who called themselves the School of the Night, you know, who, who were deeply into hermetic ideas of the soul being in its melancholy state, kind of trapped in the body and um, in despair, you know, and, and needing to to rise up through the cosmos in order to achieve, you know, enlightenment. So there's there's a lot of, of cosmology in English Renaissance poetry, and there's a lot, uh, you know, a sense of desperation, really, of being unenlightened or sort of, you know, stuck in the night and the darkness, but also the power of that darkness 
to instill a kind of um, longing to return, which is need needed before you can return. So I think John Dowland is, you know, is part of that movement. His little sort of motto by which he described himself was Semper Dowland, Semper Dolens, you know, always Dowland, always miserable or kind of depressed or whatever. But it's more than that. He took on that motto, you know, as a kind of hermetic maxim, I think. And his most famous pieces are based on the lacrimae theme, which means tears. And it's a little theme sort of dum, da, da, dum, which is almost like a sort of tear overflowing, which he used for a lute solo and for a song called Flow My Tears. And his songs of melancholy are about a sort of world-weary existential angst, you know, about the soul having fallen from its state of original divinity and longing to, well, the, the very power and beauty of the music, you know, instills the longing to return. So I think it's deeply hermetic in that sense. And his seven lacrimae pavans, which are written for five vials and lute. For me, again, it's, it's another piece a bit like Monteverdi's Vespers. You know, you sit and listen to these seven pieces of music in the dark, um, maybe with a candle, and immerse yourself in them. And they are seven stages from the earth to the divine. You know, they are seven forms of tears which start off as a kind of very ancient or primordial sense of having fallen from the divine and then then gradually the realization of the me melancholy of the human condition through sort of groaning and being sad and then a kind of effort that's needed to make a turnaround and start moving upwards as it were through love and then the final true tears where one sort of reaches one's destination so these seven patterns again a lot of music historians will poo-poo this idea but i understand them as reflecting the hermetic fall and rise of the soul and for me they have that power when i listen to them and i've performed them a lot as well and to perform them within a vile consort is, is an amazingly powerful experience
What have we not talked about that you want to talk about, Angela? I don't know. We seem to have covered a huge amount of ground. Well, let's let, let's just let Arvo Pert decide our next. Uh, yes, let's Arvo. I mean, Arvo Pert. So here is he's a composer, one of the very few contemporary or near contemporary composers who really speaks to me. Um, his music is very very spiritual, and he he developed a style which he calls holy holy minimalism, um, which um, is a kind of very pure, very simple um, harmonic style, I guess you'd say where he emphasizes the per perfect harmonies. This particular piece, he uses a, a technique he calls tintinabulation, which means bells, which is like a reduction of harmony and melody to what is absolutely essential. And through it, he creates a kind of shimmering landscape and again evokes this almost unbearable sense of longing of the soul for this purity and stillness. And the piece I've chosen is a piece called Silencium from Tabula Rasa of 1977. So it's called Silence. And the whole piece is actually a musical evocation of silence in some extraordinary magical way. And it just takes you to a place which is, again, a connection of heaven and earth because he moves from the deepest possible, almost inaudible deep sounds to the highest possible again almost inaudible sounds and everything in between while still retaining a sense of complete silence what do you think of john cage and his um, evocations of silence? uh well i haven't listened to a lot of john cage but i'm very wary of a lot of what i would call over intellectualism in 20th century music and sort of gimmicky kind of stuff i i yeah, Stockhausen, John Cage, doesn't do much for me, I'm afraid. It doesn't touch my soul. All right, let's hear some Arvo Pert then. Some real silence. Now, for your last piece, we return to Monteverdi. Yes, I have to, I have to ask for the indulgence of having two pieces of Monteverdi <laughs> um, because I just really wanted to um, bring in the other side of Monteverdi as opposed to his, his um, spiritual side in the Vespers. I wanted to, to, to end with one of his madrigals. And this is a madrigal from his seventh book of, mad of madrigals of 1619, and, well, what can I say about it? I mean, in terms of this marriage of words and music, this little piece probably is one of the most superb examples of play, both playfulness and, and very sort of deep erotic arousal in a way. 
And if you look at the words, well, I'll read the words. With what softness, O scented lips, I both kiss you and hear you speak. But if I enjoy one pleasure, the other is taken from me. Why do your delights kill each other when my soul lives so sweetly for both of them? What sensuous harmony you make, O dear kisses, O sweet words. If only you were able to unite both your sweetnesses, words kissing and kisses speaking. And I just love that text because here we have the Mercury and Venus, you know, here we have the kisses and the words. And he's saying in this in this song that in real life, as it were, you can't speak and kiss at the same time. Uh, in other words, you can't bring Mercury and Venus together. But of course, in music and song, you can, because with the music and the words, you are bringing them together completely. So what he's actually doing in this piece of music is uniting words and kisses through the music although he's saying it's impossible to do so and I, and I I just love that about it and the way he takes two little different motifs one for words one for kisses and sort of weaves them together and then on the words sensuous harmony creates the most amazingly kind of rich and um, yeah sensuous sort of harmonious kind of environment for these words and then plays again with the kisses in the words. So it's both playful and deep and erotic and and also very spiritual, you know, and brings again brings this united sense together of words and music, of heart and mind, you know, the two parts of ourselves. I mean, the metaphor can go on. Um, and he just does it in this beautiful little little piece.
Claudio Monteverdi, Conche Suavita, with what sweetness, what softness, from the seventh book of Madrigal, 1619. And this version is by L'Arpeggiata. Now, Angela Voss, how do you think you will cope on the esoteric island? Um, not very well. If I was totally on my own, I'd have to say um, I'm definitely not a loner. I, I, I definitely need to be surrounded by people. So I think the aloneness of it will be very challenging. However, I think I'd probably try and treat it as a kind of holiday interlude rather than a sort of something forever and ever. <laughs> and um, I'm afraid it's it forever and ever. Of, it's, it's forever and ever in, 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 as far as the human life goes, although if you want to consider moving yes, beyond this. Yes, that, that, that's true. So, yeah, I'm not sure. But um, I think if I've got all this music to listen to, then that obviously will be will be wonderful. But, yeah, the aloneness of it, I think, I would definitely find challenging. Well, you're about to be cast away on the esoteric island. Oh, no. <laughs> and... Not only will you have the discs you've selected, but we're going to give you a copy of the Corpus Hermeticum and the complete works of John Dee. And oh, wonderful. You may okay. take a, a book of your own choice as well. So what would that book be? Well, that would have to be uh, Ficino's Three Books on Life because I keep going back there and I've kept going back there for years and years and years and finding more and more gems of wisdom, particularly within the third part about fitting one's life to the heavens. So... I take that with me and my ephemeris, you know, it will help me work astrologically day well, by day. I don't know if the ephemeris is going to be allowed. I think you might have to just... Oh, you, okay. You get one book and that's it. Just um, one book. Well, then it was definitely Fatino's three books on life. De triplici vita comparanda, it's yours. Now, you may also have a luxury to make life a little more comfortable. What would you like that to Well, be? that would have to be a jacuzzi bath. A jacuzzi. Okay. So you can so get, that I can get yeah, relax more. in the bubbles. <laughs> right on. And um, presumably on this desert yeah. island, you also have the sea. So you can then have like a nice refreshing dip in the in the ocean afterwards. That's right. Yes, I can. Yes, I'll have the have the advantage of the sea and um, of the bubbles. But I just love being immersed in water. And also, you know, at the moment, I've got quite bad tinnitus and just hearing water and hearing the sound of, of bubbles and water flowing and waterfalls and being immersed in it is just bliss. So yes, a jacuzzi bath. All right. Well, hopefully the, the time you spend on this esoteric island will have the knock-on benefit of curing your tinnitus because it will be so quiet there. And the only really loud sounds yes. you'll be hearing are these beautifully chosen bits of music. And there'll be no technology, which will be be lovely yeah except the magic record player that plays all these discs for you I, I oh kind yes of, that's true i like to yes, think of it as, have to play them. as an island something like the island in shakespeare's tempest so there's these sort of daimonic presences who can do things like play records for you oh right? the, yes well the daimonic presences would be great but then they'd stop me from being lonely unfortunately we have to ask you if you could choose just one disc to save from the waves from the eight tracks you've oh, chosen yes. which one would it be I think it would have to be Monteverdi's Duo Seraphim. I think it would have to be that piece because, ha, huh, well, because of everything I've already said about it, it just transports me to another place and I could just listen to it for hours. Well, Angela Voss, thank you very much for sharing with us your esoteric island discs and stay esoteric. Thank you. It's been great fun. 